Hello, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at TPI, and I'm joined by my colleague, TPI Senior Fellow Sarah O. Lamb. Today, we have as our guest, Jeff Kossaf, who has just come out with a very timely and provocative new book titled Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation. Jeff is a professor of cybersecurity law uh, in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. He's the author of numerous books and articles on cybersecurity issues, First Amendment issues, and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Before becoming an academic, Jeff practiced cybersecurity, privacy, and First Amendment law at the Covington and Burling Law Firm, and he clerked for several federal judges. And before becoming a lawyer, he was uh, a technology and political journalist for the Oregonian and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, reporting and a recipient of the George Polk Award for National Reporting. Welcome, Jeff. Delighted to have you on the, on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you have timed this book uh, pretty well, <laughs> because speech issues in their various forms are uh, are everywhere. Um, maybe you can start off, and, and uh, if you can, and just describe what you uh, see as the major themes of the book. Yeah, sure. And I just have to give the disclaimer, everything I say is only my viewpoint, not the DOD, the Naval Academy, or the Department of Navy. Um, now that I have that out of the way. Um, I mean, you don't speak for the Navy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, my overall theme of the book is that there are some really novel challenges uh, that we're confronting due to falsehoods, misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, and how it spreads on the internet. Uh, but I wrote this book to urge the public and policymakers to resist the automatic urge to regulate our way out of the problem. So I acknowledge that there are circumstances where certain types of speech are not protected, but those are narrowly defined categories by the Supreme Court. And I want people to think long and hard about proposals that would greatly expand those categories because they could have a lot of unintended consequences and might not really help us address the underlying issues. Obviously, the, the subtitle of your book is Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation. What would you say is the, uh, is the status of, free, of freedom of speech at the present time perhaps relative to, to earlier periods? Well, in the United States, it's pretty good. Um, it, it's uh, definitely relative to the, our first century. It's, uh, we, we've had uh, the past few Supreme Courts in terms of going by chief justices have uh, really had expansive readings of the First Amendment. And I think that uh, especially when you compare the United States to other countries, including other liberal democracies, um, we, we really are an outlier in terms of the extent to which uh, our, our courts, our constitution protect freedom of speech. Um, I do think that we might be at a turning point, unfortunately. I think uh, when you look at the public opinion 
polling and when you hear politicians from both sides of the aisle, um, they might say that they are big supporters of the First Amendment, but then they will support measures and bills that are really contrary to our current First Amendment doctrine. And I think when you combine that with the pressures we're seeing globally with uh, governments already starting to crack down on speech that would have been protected a decade ago, I, I think that we're at a very dangerous point where we might be heading into a free speech recession. And we free speech ebbs and flows over time. And um, I, I worry that um, we, we might be contracting it in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an economist, so I have a, a little different uh, take, but I mean, I do see that their claims, claims of, uh, of misinformation and disinformation are pretty, are pretty rampant, and there are lots of uh, calls, you know, something should be done about it, there ought to be a law kind of thing, and um, uh well, but I, and and you know I'm I'm certainly sympathetic uh, to your point of view. Is your point of view that nothing, well, that 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 it would be unconstitutional? I mean, what would what are the boundaries of the First Amendment there? What 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 could, could be done and what can't be done? Well, so there are certain types of false speech that have never been protected. So perjury, for example, if you go into a court and you lie under oath, there can and should be legal consequences. Uh, if you lie to a federal agent, nobody really seriously says that people have a First Amendment right to do that. Uh, if you're a company and you lie about your products and let's say you have a vitamin C pill and you claim that this cures and prevents all COVID, um, the government can regulate that because the courts have set different standards for commercial speech. Um, if you meet the very high bar of defamation, and if you cause harm to someone, and if that person's a public figure, if you meet the standard called actual malice, which is knowledge of falsity or reckless disregard for falsity, um, you can be forced to pay a whole lot of money, as Fox News uh, it has learned recently with, with Dominion. So um, there are ways that the court have, has said that people and companies can be held accountable for their speech, including false speech. But the point is that those are very carefully drawn categories. And what the Supreme Court has said uh, within the past 15 years is we don't have an ad hoc balancing test for harmful speech. So we don't say, oh, you know, th this new type of speech, I don't think it's very good, so we're just not going to protect it. Um, that's the type of movement that I'm trying to push against, but it's also... Um, what so many politicians and, uh, frankly, even journalists are willing to accept. So do you make a, a distinction between uh, a, a misinformation and disinformation? I mean, by misinformation, what I how I interpret it is just basically something that's something that somebody thinks is wrong. It may or may not be wrong, but somebody thinks it's 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 just it's incorrect. A disinformation. Um, strikes me that there's a uh, you know there's a an intention to perpetrate something that is uh that is uh incorrect and in particular it could be uh from a you know from a foreign government for example so for example if a foreign government uh, uh 
you know, uh, has a disinformation campaign, is that also protected speech? Well, so the, those, there are a few questions. So in terms of the distinction between misinformation and disinformation, I think that's the, those are the standard definitions. So I, I would agree with that. That's how they're defined in terms of foreign governments. So a foreign government does not have a first amendment right to speak, but the Supreme Court has held all the way back for more than 50 years now that we as Americans not only have a First Amendment right to speak, but we have a First Amendment right to receive information. So um, that raises some tricky issues. Um, so yeah, if there was, if the US government was blocking Russian uh, uh, social media interference, Russia is not gonna be able to sue uh, the United States for, for interfering with its First Amendment rights, but it does raise the issue of um, what happens when the when the U.S. government has the ability to unilaterally define what is misinformation and start putting pressure on platforms to take it down or to block it. Right. Well, we'll, we'll that's we'll get to that soon. But but in, in the case of the Russian disinformation, so the you know the Russians wouldn't have a a First Amendment uh, complaint, but some U.S. citizen might have a, a complaint that they weren't able to they weren't able to consume that information or hear that. Yes. Yeah, and we haven't seen the full extent of that being tested in the Internet age. So, what we have is a lot of First Amendment precedent that was set from the 1950s through the 1980s, um, which obviously did not involve the Internet. And what you're having courts have to do is apply these things. So, I mean, the receiving information that came from a case involving mailings from the Communist Party. Um, we have other cases that involve uh, indecent a state commission writing to book distributors saying you can't distribute these indecent books. Um, and it, it's a bit of a square peg in a round hole trying to sort of fit this precedent into the current debates. And I think what we're starting to see is the Supreme Court realizing that while it can stick to the principles from those early cases, it really needs to draw clearer lines in terms of uh, what the boundaries are for the First Amendment with the internet. So you talked about, um, you mentioned uh... Uh, social platforms, and uh, you do have a you do have a, a section in your book, and obviously there are several court cases now uh, uh, on uh, you, you how you what you what you refer to it as is jawboning. I'm old enough that I remember when the government was jawboning against companies not to raise their prices you know, when they're in previous periods of inflation, but now we're talking about jawboning. In terms of uh, just to take an example out of thin air, what type of information about COVID um, they should they should uh, they should purvey? Um, so that obviously, you know, these are all private. These are all private co uh, companies. So presumably, they don't they can say anything they you know they they can say anything they want. But obviously, there does seem to be evidence that they have uh, uh, had some pressure. Uh, from the government to uh, to uh, to 
not say certain things and I guess to say certain things about during about COVID and and uh, um, and so you, there really was a period, as far as I can tell, when when a when a whole when a whole debate about uh, appropriate COVID policy was uh, in a serious way stifled, and and that is that is in the courts now. Maybe you can bring our audience up to date on what on what the issues are before the in the courts. Yeah, so I mean, there there are two different cases, two different sets of cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, jawboning, which you mentioned. So this is this issue of at what point does the government's counter speech cross the line into coercing or pressuring an intermediary? In this case, it would be usually social media platforms or Google or something like that to, to block constitutionally protected speech. And uh, this is where we have precedent from the 1960s involving book distributors. And it's not a terribly satisfying application to say, well, because a state agency was putting pressure on distributors, this is the line that you draw for social media platforms. So the Supreme Court is going to need to draw a clear line there. And I can see both sides of the argument in terms of how it helps to draw that line. So on one hand, um, the, we, and my book talks a lot about the marketplace of ideas, this idea that, you know, rather than immediately resort to regulation, uh, instead let truth and falsity grapple on the open market and the truth will rise to the top. And there are some uh, flaws with that model that you as an economist probably know much better than me as a lawyer um, in terms of market access, for example, for this, theoretical market. Um, but I think that in the marketplace of ideas, to the extent that we rely on it, um, we need to let the government be a participant in the marketplace. So uh, let, I mean, the government does play an important role in having a voice. And so if there's a lot of misinformation out there, um, we want the government to be able to say, no, this is actually what we think. Uh, we don't think this is correct. And uh, people may or may not believe it, but they should at least be able to hear it. Now, the problem gets to when the government is not only exercising that counter speech, but putting pressure on the social media platforms to take down the speech and uh, that, that they disagree with. And I don't, I, I think that there have been some cases in this court case that's uh, going up to the Supreme Court that make me very uncomfortable about what the government's doing, like having the FBI routinely contact platforms, having politicians who criticize platforms for health misinformation right at the same time, threatening to revoke Section 230. And even if they don't say, if you don't revoke Section 230, you will lose, you, or if you don't remove this misinformation, we'll revoke Section 230. It's an implicit threat. I members of Congress or the White House who have some power to influence that. So I think that the Supreme Court has a tough job ahead of it that it's going to have to decide by next June, which is what guidance do we give? So the government knows, you know, this is what you can and can't do. And I don't think we're, I don't think we have that guidance yet. On the other side, we have another set of cases going to the Supreme Court where um, the states of Florida and Texas passed laws 
that restrict the ability of backwards delivery, that say, you know, certain types of things are unlawful viewpoint discrimination because these were passed out of concern that the platforms were unfairly moderating conservative speech and blocking it. And I mean, even aside from the, you know, the kind of overt threats that you're you're talking about, you know, the companies we're talking about, you know, the, the large digital platforms are under pretty pretty intensive scrutiny, you know, by by regulators, enforcement agencies, antitrust, other things. Uh, so, you know, it may not take a lot of, <laughs> of, you know, even subtle pressure might, might you know, might, you know, say, well, what the hell, we'll, we'll uh, you know, we'll, you know, we won't put this stuff up. Well, we don't care that much. Um, is that, you know, that seems to me to be a real, you know, a real concern. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I, I think that while the government should be able to participate in counter speech and provide counter speech, I, I do think that uh, the government should not be using the threat of regulation, even if it's informal and indirect threat, because if you're a platform, you're probably going to go along with whatever content content takedown the government wants because you don't want to increase your liability and spend more money. Right. Right, right. And then there's the other argument, and we can at least other things. There's the other argument that some people make that, you know, these uh, these platforms are so big and they and they face. I'm not saying that I believe this, but this is an argument, and certainly a plausible argument, that they face insufficient competitions in terms of in terms of uh, not just in economic terms, but in terms of other other uh, other outlets for uh, for speech. You know that that. That that is that is more of a of a rationale uh, to do something. Yeah. So I mean, there's arguments that platform that social media platforms are like common carriers, uh, like a telephone company, and I I don't find that terribly convincing because there's the physical infrastructure of a telephone company that a social media platform doesn't have. Now. There's obviously not perfect competition in the social media market. I think a lot of that just has to do with with uh, network effects. That it, and it's not terribly easy if you dislike a certain social media platform's moderation policy. There's a lot of considerations that would prevent you from just switching to a competitor because you followers friends on this platform. So the competition isn't perfect, but it's very different from phone company. And but you've had people like Justice Thomas who have very enthusiastically made the comparison between social media and care. And he's, of any of the justices, he seems the most willing to impose more regulations on social media. Uh, yeah. And that also, I guess, maybe kind of more a little, you know, Connects this whole thing to the to the net net neutrality debate, uh, uh, which is also about whether, uh, well, well, in that case, internet service providers should be considered common carriers, which presumably would also have speech speech implications, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there are a lot of people who are against net neutrality, but they're in favor of imposing content moderation restrictions on social media platforms. And then there are a lot of people who are opposed to imposing content moderation, 
uh, restrictions on social media platforms, but are in favor of net neutrality. So there's, it's been interesting to watch, not been very involved in net neutrality, but it's been interesting to watch the sides kind of shift and accuse each other of being hypocritical. And you think that there are definitely some analogies. Sarah, did you, uh, did you have some, some, uh, yeah. So from your research and scholarship, do you think technology, the, the scale and scope of the amount of speech changes how the Supreme Court should think about First Amendment line drawing? Like, you know, the algorithms and the AI tools to filter speech. Is this something that the Supreme Court can can rely on law or do they need to also understand the technology? I think that you need to understand the technology, but I also think that not just in the First Amendment context, but also in the Fourth Amendment context and the computer use act case they heard a few years ago, they've kind of shattered the myths that they just don't understand. That, that that's always a concern. Um, I think the Supreme Court and frankly judges at all levels take it seriously, and I've not seen these. Congress might be a different story, but. At least judges, I see take, taking it really seriously and trying to get it right. I think the biggest danger is making any one too specific to the technology of the moment, because the Supreme Court might not hear another similar case for 30 years. I mean, their last big internet case about internet of the First Amendment, they've had a few, but one that set the general principle, that was in 1997. I mean, they were still operating off of that framework. And I think it's been a successful framework because the, the court articulated a very broad principle that the internet is not going to be treated as broadcasters. We're going to give the internet the full scope of First Amendment protections. And I think that's worked very well. I'd like to see the Supreme Court in these cases this year figure out how to re-articulate those principles for the current day and reaffirm that they that, that, that they continue to believe that's the most important. Right. So if we're thinking, you know, if this these decisions have like a 20-year shelf life or whatnot, and what, you know, what happens when, I mean, I guess speech online, you know, it's growing, it's still, but it, it's of kind of the same kind, unless you think like AI generated language is is different in kind. Do you think do you think they have the tools to to I mean, I guess the best would be to draw a bright line in protection of the First Amendment to say, you know, government don't overstep. But uh, that would that line on which side of that line would AI generated speech be? I think it depends on the specific content. I mean, I think that people use AI in a variety of ways. And I think that there are some interesting issues about who is the speaker, where is where is the coming from. I think AI frankly raises much more interesting Section 230 issues because Section 230 protects interactive computer services for liability arising from content someone else generated. So let's say a platform's using AI takes content from someone else and reformulates it, to what extent, if any, does Section 230 liability from that content that it's gotten somewhere else, perhaps rearranged in a certain 
and that we don't have much guidance on, but I think we're going to get uh, for the First Amendment also. I mean, I think the biggest issues are things like who's the speaker, what is the term done for defamation related First Amendment issues, how credible is AI? So, I mean, do people really believe what they see AI? Damage can be. But I think the general, I don't think the Supreme Court should come out and say anything that is AI should so I, um, I'm curious as you go as you go around and and talk to groups and talk to and get them do various podcasts. How you know I'm I'm curious as to as to how you gauge the for want of a better phrase you know the popularity of the First Amendment these days because uh, you presumably talk to lots of people who, you know. You know, you have a, I, I personally kind of agree with it, but you have a, it's kind of a, some people might consider it a pretty, an absolutist um, uh, take on a view of the First Amendment. I hope I'm mischaracterizing it, but I'm just wondering whether you get pushback on that or you, or you find, uh, I mean, how controversial do you find it? Yeah. So, I mean, the book came out a few weeks ago. So, for more than a month, I've been doing a lot of talks and forums and interviews. And I, I consider this book and really my position to be very old school First Amendment. I'm saying, you know, the First Amendment is there and it is strong and it protects people and companies from the government. And I didn't think that was a very radical idea, but I think, unfortunately, it's not incredibly popular these days. And I think that more popular argument, unfortunately, would have been for me to say, let's rethink the First Amendment. I don't want to rethink it. I like it. I think that it sets the United States apart from some pretty awful countries and it does a lot of great things. It's not perfect. In terms of absolutist, I've been called an absolutist quite a bit over the past month, and that's just not true. I mean, I went through all of the types of speech that I don't think are protected, nor should they be protected. They're, I mean, the only serious person I know who's ever been a First Amendment absolutist has been Hugo Black, and he's been dead for a while. And no, nobody's ever really agreed with him on that. But other than that, I mean, you occasionally hear people say that the First Amendment says Congress shall make law, so that means nothing. But that's not really how it works. But I do support what I support is have continuing the strong reading of the First Amendment and being incredibly cautious before carving out new exceptions. One thing that has come up in interviews and talks that I've given is, you know, are you concerned about, I won't talk about specific politicians, but about so-and-so getting power and the authoritarianism and our democracy will come. And I say, okay, well, I'm not going to weigh in on that, but let's just say that you are concerned why on earth would you address your concerns about authoritarianism by weakening the First Amendment? Because an authoritarian would like you to weaken the First Amendment. Like you're you're not going to combat authoritarianism by taking away speech rights. And this is something that comes from journalists and people who I think have a really vested interest in maintaining the First Amendment because that's kind of existential. And I, I tell journalists quite a bit, I say, you don't need to both sides the First Amendment. We know your job. We rely on it. You're, it's okay for you to say that you support the First Amendment. 
you're not going to lose your job for an ethics violation. But you think, I mean, there have been a lot, I'm not going to single out any specific person, but there have been a lot of um, takes on the First Amendment, but let's rethink it, let's overhaul it for the current challenges. And I just think they're so short-sighted. And I think they're well-intentioned, but the problem with weakening free speech rights is it doesn't matter what the intentions were who get it. It matters how the person who will get those powers years down the road will use it. And I don't think people really are thinking that through it. This is not maybe technically a First Amendment issue, but as an ex-journalist, and you, just because you brought up uh, journalists, um, my impression is that there are lots of journalists these days. I'm not sure they would say that they don't, you know, they don't want the first there are lots of journalists who, you know, who are who follow, who who. I mean, even in new, newsrooms of you know, the most prominent publications in the country, certain types of certain types of speech is is kind of my impression. Maybe I'm wrong. Is is out of bounds. So um, that's not. I, I guess that's not. That's a. That's more a matter. You know, an internal an internal matter for the press to to look at, but and not really a First Amendment issue. But I'm curious about your view of that having come from the world of journalism and and uh yeah well so i mean i i think that journalists don't like to inject themselves into the story and they don't like to take positions which is understandable and i think that there are very good reasons for journalists to not support or oppose political candidates for example because you want and, i mean obviously there's a role for that for columnists and Bed writers, but for someone who's reporting news, you don't need to hear about. I think, unfortunately, there's too too many times just me as a consumer of news. I've written for a newspaper fifteen years, but I worry too much about the increase in sort of trying to get a certain person's land into what you would think is a traditional news outlet, but. I do think there are certain issues like the First Amendment where, I mean, I for me, I, when I was a journalist, I relied heavily on the First Amendment. I had a congressman who wanted us to not publish an investigation, and he was threatening us with a defamation lawsuit with one of the most powerful lawyers in the state who's now a federal judge. We, we I did an investigative story in Texas where I was being threatened jail time in Texas State Prison, which isn't anything you about, but because I was reporting the story and they said, we don't want you reporting the story. And because of the First Amendment, neither of those were really serious threats. But if I were even in the UK, that would actually be a real issue. So, so yeah, I mean, but so I think for those sorts of things, I think, you know, journalists can maybe say, you know, I, yeah, I think the First Amendment's good. So let me, um, let me finish by maybe Sarah has some things she wants to talk about. But you know the subtitle. Of, well, the title of your book is "Liar in a uh, in a uh, in a crowded theater," which presumably is a play on the phrase "fire in a crowded theater." And the way I, as a non-lawyer, interpret the phrase "fire in a crowded theater," that you can't say "fire in a crowded theater" is if if there's some you know imminent, I guess, imminent threat that that type of speech is going to. Be, be you know be harmful lead to a stampede or something like that then it's not it's not it's not it's not protected but 
And, you know, how did you, what, what do you think, what sort of imminent threat does there need to be to, 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 to limit speech? Or how do you interpret that phrase? Well, so the title actually, uh, that wasn't the initial title of the book. I actually came to it when I was halfway through writing. And the reason why I gave it that title is that the phrase fire in a crowded theater in, I mean, a lot of the first half of my book is looking at cases where the government or plaintiff tried to regulate or liability for speech. And court later said, no, you can't do that because of the First Amendment. But in almost all of the cases where someone was trying to impose an unconstitutional restriction on speech, that person or that government agency would say, well, you can yell fire in a crowded theater, so you also can't say this. And it turns out you can say this. And came this sort of wild card for saying, there is this bad speech, therefore, I think it's bad, so therefore the First Amendment doesn't protect it. And that's not what fire in a crowded theater came from. Fire in a crowded theater was a hypothetical the Supreme Court used in 1919 to justify the imprisonment of someone who distributed a pamphlet that criticized the military drill. And it was not about imminent danger at the time. What instead the Supreme Court said a very low burden, here and present danger. So that was basically a metaphor used to justify saying, if we think it's a clear and present danger, we can impose liability in the First Amendment. Now, in 1969, the Supreme Court substantially narrowed the clear and present danger test and changed it to imminent incitement of false action, which is a much higher barrier. So while the Supreme Court never actually adjudicated a dispute involving a fire in a crowded theater, what it stands for is justifying an outdated conception of free speech. To this day, I mean, if you do a Google News search right now for fire in a crowded theater, I will bet that you will find some politician who's using it freely to justify whatever restriction on speech that they want. So I think it's a very dangerous phrase because it's used all sorts of ways to really be a shortcut around First Amendment. Yeah, well, I guess we haven't really discussed current events as much, but, you know, from reading your book, you know, can't help but think about former President Trump and how he's really good at saying things but not saying them. So a lot of, I guess, I don't know if they're falsehoods or lies or do you have a category for, for that in, in your uh, view of speech? Well, so it really depends on the specific context. So, I mean, there's obviously a lot of debate about the former president. I mean, that is, so depending on how you categorize what he says and uh, any particular speech in the book, I actually focus one instance, and this actually involves Senator Pauly uh, and his criticism of then Judge Katanji Brown Jackson when she was coming up for. Supreme Court nomination hearing, and he put out accurate information about her sentencing of child pornography defendants when she was a district judge. And it was entirely accurate saying, you know, she, in all seven of these cases, she sentenced them to below sentencing. And I'm very concerned about this. And he did a, it was very, very carefully crafted. So it's not misinformation because classic sense, but I use it as an example because it's the example of sort of a certain 
bias of political speech that might lead people to a different conclusion because what it omitted was that the majority of those types of sentences, non-production child pornography cases, were below sentencing guidelines across the political spectrum for judges because the sentencing guidelines are just so abnormally high. And so without that context, you would think, oh, she's this radical judge who lets the worst type of people light sentences when she still sentenced them to very harsh sentences and she followed really what was the consensus among most federal judges he didn't say that so i say you know what what do you categorize this this is a misinformation this is just kind of i mean this is what politicians do i use the example of adam schiff who was the head of house intelligence committee during president trump's presidency and he made a lot of statements that implied knowledge of Russian collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia in 2016 that were not borne out by at least his committee's reports. And again, that's, I mean, he, it was obviously very opinionated and a lot of people accused him of being misleading, but that's again, politicians do that. So, and I think that while both of those types of things get got criticism, they can get criticism. They're also a lot of that is just kind of what you expect politicians to do. That's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a selective um, presentation of facts. And then, I mean, but that's like you said, accurate, but also, you know, assuming that people have a certain baseline knowledge but they don't know the other side of the story. I mean, I guess, which is why we need a, a free press <laughs> yeah. to have the other point of view. And so, yeah, the whole structure of the fourth estate becomes that much more important because it's a given that you're going to have politicians. So you do need a free press to, to bring some sunlight to that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I don't recall the press correcting Adam Schiff, but maybe I missed it. But there were, there were Wall Street Journal, so certain press did correct. But obviously, I think if you're just watching MSNBC, you might not get all of that counter speech. I'm all I'm always thankful for the Wall Street Journal. The, um, well, this was this was great. Uh, uh, people should buy your book. I, I hope it's a great success. And thank you very much uh, for participating in the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great.